Our scripture reading this evening is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 28, and verses 50 to 58. I can be found on page 1,222 of your pew Bibles. We will also be reading from Lord's Day 17 on Jesus and the resurrection and how Christ's resurrection benefits us. Before we read, let's pray. Jesus, we turn to you now. And what is amazing is we turn to you in prayer, reading about what you did bodily on this earth. And we indeed make this petition knowing that you are of, you are sitting next to your Father. You are raised up. And you hear and know. You are our King, and the very central hope of this is the resurrection itself. And we pray that as we read from your word, and that you would give us us understanding, and that you would help us hold dear the message of the resurrection. We pray this in your name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles." Unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And now we will skip ahead to verses 50 to 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Ascends the reading. I do want to draw our attention to that last verse and also connection to what the Heidelberg Catechism asks, which we'll read in just a moment. How does Christ's resurrection benefit you? Well, if we look at this chapter, which we read a large majority of it, everything that Paul is saying leads to this end of the chapter, and look what it means. So how does Christ and his resurrection and, and then our resurrection benefit us? Verse 58 Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There we see the Apostle Paul answer that question, just what does the resurrection mean to us? How does it benefit us? Now we read that from Lord's Day 17 in the Heidelberg Catechism as we seek to understand what God's Word teaches about the resurrection. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection he has overcome death, so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Why do we care about the resurrection? Why is it necessary? That's a good question to ask anyone. It's a good question to ask yourself. It's a good question to ask an unbeliever. What do you think of the resurrection? Does it matter to you? And the Heidelberg asks it in its own way of what benefit is the resurrection? Is Christ's resurrection to believers? What difference does it make to our life? Does it make a difference? On on, uh, Easter, we looked at a text from Acts where Paul, before in Athens, before all these assembled scholars had, had walked through 
the, the message of the gospel and ended on the importance of the resurrection. And we, we sort of continue that and that idea here. We read further in 1 Corinthians 15 of Paul's grand argument, his grand preaching on the resurrection itself. Notice that it starts with Christ's resurrection and ends with our resurrection because the two go hand in hand. They're tied together. So then it's a very apropos question. Well, what does Christ's resurrection mean? Why does it matter to us? And do we, do we do any favors to ourselves by thinking about it, by living for it? And the question is, yes, we do. By keeping the resurrection firmly in mind, what we are keeping in mind is life itself, the center of the gospel, what is most important, that Jesus rose from the dead and that believers rise in him. So we'll look at that this evening. We're going to look at four points. The first one is just a brief one on the, the requirements of the resurrection. And then the last of the three points, will, four points, will follow the catechism itself. You see that the catechism has that, that first, second, and third as it's answering the benefits of the resurrection. But I just want to look at first the, the resurrection required. Because that... that that starts our answer. You know, everything that Scripture says and everything we believe about it is fundamental to the fact that this happened. And Paul, you see, is dealing with that objection in Corinth and to the Corinthians, who are some are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead, or others would say that it has happened already. We even have that belief today. Those who would say, well, the resurrection has already occurred. There's what's called hyperpreterism and the idea that everything in the Bible, everything that the Bible might say about the future has been fulfilled already, even the resurrection of the dead. And what Paul is saying is, is if this is true, we have no faith. If the resurrection didn't occur, or if the resurrection couldn't occur, or if the resurrection already occurred and didn't happen for soul and body... And then his conclusion is, we are of all people most to be pitied. For we hold to a gospel that is futile, that doesn't have any weight to it, that doesn't have truth. And in fact, he says, it's worse, we would misrepresent God by what we preach. But then he says, the fact is, this happened. It happened. And that's, that's required. It's required for our belief in the resurrection that Jesus did rise from the dead. He burst through the grave, and it happened to him, body and soul, it must have. That's what we believe. It is required. Our faith requires that the resurrection happen. You see his argument starting in verse 12 of chapter 15, and he gives it there. I won't reread all of it, but he, he talks about this and its importance. It goes till verse 19, verses 12 to 19 is his defense that this must have happened. Earlier in the text, he read how many Jesus had appeared to. It happened. Clearly, the gospel message cannot be made into something other than the good news of life in Christ that requires a resurrection of the dead and requires a bodily resurrection, a physical one, a real one, we might say. I referenced Acts as, we've been going through Acts in the Acts Bible study, and what you'd see as you go through it is how central the resurrection is to everything that happens, and especially near the end of Acts, Paul is continually placed on trial. He's continually placed before these Roman governors and these kings and even sent to Rome, and, and, and how does he defend himself? 
Well, what's interesting in Acts is, is as you go through it, you see Paul really doesn't make much of a defense of himself, not because he did something wrong. The charges were false. But what he does is he says, the reason I'm in prison, the reason the Jews want me dead, the reason for these chains is the resurrection. And he boils it down to that central point. It is all about the resurrection. And if you believe it or not, and then there is near the end of of Acts, Paul's defense, his speech to King Agrippa, and it's one worthy to be read, where he he is putting all his weight behind it and saying, King Agrippa, this is the fulfillment of all the scriptures, of all the prophets. What is fulfilled is that Christ rose from the dead. And he even ends it by saying, King Agrippa, do you believe? I know you believe. It's that, that just pure desire Paul has that this king, this, this wicked king, would repent and believe and put his faith in what? What do we place our faith in? Well, it's Jesus, but, but elaborate. What, what do we mean by that? It's, it's, well, it's Jesus and what he's done. Well, what's that? The resurrection. Because that resurrection comes to a head as the, the fulfillment of it all of his suffering, of his death. We've been going through it through the catechism, his, his suffering, his burial, and now resurrection. You see, here in the catechism begins what we would call Jesus' state of exaltation. The last Lord's days we've walked through were those in a state of humiliation, the suffering and what he bore for us, but now it shifts and it turns, and what we see now is his glory and what it means. So why do we care about the resurrection? And I'm going to ask that question for each of these points. Why do we care about the resurrection? Because it happened with Christ, and so will happen again. Because it happened already. That's huge. Why why is that huge? Resurrection happened? What does that prove? Well, one, it proves that it can happen. Others say it can't. Others say, no, there is no resurrection of the dead, but no, it did happen. Which means, as, as through all of what the Bible promises, the promise of that resurrection is given to you, and it will happen again. And so, that changes the world. That's why we care about the resurrection. Now, second, our second point is righteousness shared. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? The Catechism says... First, that by his resurrection he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. If we were to receive any benefits from his work and sacrifice, his suffering and death, it needed to be dealt with. The the grave needed to be dealt with. We talked about that last time. He needed to overcome death. He needed to break its hold. And that's what he did. What's amazing, then, is when we profess our faith, and as we use the words of the Apostles' Creed, every week, every week what we're saying is one conquered death. One was buried, he truly died, but he rose, and the grave could not contain him. Satan's power, the power of death, was proven to be weaker than this man who was laid in the tomb. He was stronger, and he gave death its own death putting death to death for the believer, that it wouldn't happen to the believer in that there would be a resurrection from it. The gates of the realm of death, which had closed upon him, opened at his command. 
And by so doing, we share in his resurrection, even his physical resurrection, his glorified body, his soul, his body, back together in that unit. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, the same one we will also see. There is a close connection between Jesus' death, justification, and resurrection. Our resurrection and justification are, in one sense, dependent on each other. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, what does this mean? Well, truly, the, the way justification, and, and what does justification mean, that it's just as if we've never sinned and as if we've kept the law perfectly, it's that legal declaration that we're, we're credited and our, our account is righteous. We aren't made righteous through justification. That's that legal declaration. Rather, we're made righteous through sanctification. That's the theology of it. That's what we mean when we say justified. Well, that justification was achieved through Christ's death. It was his death that purchased justification. But what we see here and through Romans 4.25 is that for that final achievement to be a lasting achievement placed on us, he would have to rise. If he didn't, if there was no resurrection then it was not accomplished, and what he had purchased at his death would never make it to us. Why is that? Think of it this way. Think of it in our own legal system. When someone sins, they're, they're put in prison. Or I should, when someone sins, it breaks the law, it's similar. They're put in prison. They're thrown in prison. Well, imagine if some could, someone could serve that sentence for you. And say, no, I'll do it. I got it. I'm going to come and serve it for him. Well, that entirety of the time he is incarcerated for you, bearing your penalty, there's a certain amount of uncertainty, isn't there, between you and the judge, or in this case, between us and God the Father. His son is incarcerated. His son is bearing humiliation and pain and death and the grave. That's where he is. Until he's out of prison... We don't know the full enjoyment of the relationship with God. We also wouldn't experience that lasting and sure foundation that comes when Christ rises from the dead. It is based upon the fact that all his work has been done and it was accepted by the Father. That's what we see in the resurrection. That's what happens. We know only displeasure as long as Christ suffers humiliation, but in breaking free of the grave, being raised to new life, we see our sentence is served, and we see that we share in his righteousness. It's stamped upon us, and it can't be removed. And it's stamped on us in, of all things, the resurrection. It's that lasting, eternal peace. He is the fixture in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God, our mediator, our intercessor. Our foundation is secure in him. So why do we care about the resurrection? Because it is by the resurrection that we share in the righteousness of Christ. It is by the resurrection that through that, that we are made right before God, and it's in that lasting sense. Third, resurrection enjoyed. This is our third point of the sermon, but the second point of the catechism. The catechism in response to how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? Well, second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. I'm going to borrow from what we talked about this morning. It's all about the tenses. 
It's all about, is it present now or is it the future? And what do we see here? It's already, and that's very important, we're already raised to a new life. It's resurrection that's enjoyed here, right now. Romans 6, 5 to 11 shows us this. It says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is the the benefit of that? We need to know what we are. We're raised already and in the sense that we have new life within us. It's happened. It's something we enjoy currently. We can end up in a world of guilt and fear if this truth isn't impressed upon us, knowing that we are new creatures, knowing that we are justified, knowing that we, as it said, are considered already dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. It helps us to fight the brokenness of guilt and fear, no matter your broken condition. See, this is how you use this. Like, Let's say, as we all do, we sin, we backslide, we do something we know we're not supposed to do, and it's something that really shakes us, as sin should. Well, what do we do? Where do we go with that grief? Where do we put it? Well, we understand that in Christ, that's not what characterizes us anymore. So it alleviates our guilt. Our guilt's done in Christ. He's raised showing that that the sentence was served, the death was paid, helps in our guilt. The canons of Dort mention this in the fifth point, Article 6. For God, who is rich in mercy, according to his unchangeable purpose of election, does not take his Holy Spirit from his own completely, even when they fall grievously. Neither does he let them fall down so far that they forfeit the grace of adoption and the state of justification or commit the sin which leads to death, the sin against the Holy Spirit, and pledge themselves entirely forsaken by him in eternal ruin. What it's saying and what we believe is that that doesn't happen. And why? Because it's connected to our resurrected Lord. We are in him. And you know what that means? For God to punish you for your sin, if it's in you in Christ, would literally be that he would have to take Christ from the throne and take him down and say, I reject what you did. That's what it would have to mean for a believer to not be forgiven, to lose the Holy Spirit. Our sure foundation is the resurrection of Jesus. Father would never, never bring down his son who's accomplished his will perfectly, who he's raised up and seated there. He would never do that. That's our sure conviction. And our defense against guilt and the devil's schemes that says, you know, you're not good enough. And the answer is, of course not, but Christ is. So it helps us in guilt. It helps us in temptation as well. 
Not only does it help us respond when we failed, it helps us even to stop it in its tracks. The power by which we fight against sin is the power to say that I am not a sinner in that way. The new life is within me. I'm raised again. The power of the Holy Spirit resides within you as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ by which you fight the sin within you. So why do we care about the resurrection? Because we are products of the resurrection itself and we are so now. Our new spiritual life is resurrection life and it helps us fight guilt. It helps us fight temptation to know that we are new in Christ raised already. And finally, resurrection anticipated. Resurrection anticipated. So if the last point of the catechism was the present reality, here's the future reality. How, do Christ, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? Well, third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. You clearly see here that the, the element has now shifted. No longer is it the thing that we hold to now and look to as a, a, a present possession. It's what we long for. It's a future hope. There is that past and present tense. But how is Christ's resurrection a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. This gets to that, the idea of first fruits. Again, the, the very fact that Jesus is in heaven provides so much application for us in our life. I may have used this illustration before. I think it's a good one as it helps us understand and see this idea of first fruits. Let's think of Jesus as, and the church, let's think of Jesus and the church as a train, a very long train, and, and Jesus is the engine of that train. A train can only follow the engine. It has no capacity to go anywhere else that the engine, can't, that the engine won't. It's tied to the tracks. It's, it's tied to the strength and power of the engine itself. And we in Christ are unified and joined to him, just like all these train cars that are connected, that, that are joined in that sense to Christ himself. And there's another idea of a train. It's so long, and think of just an absurdly long train, when the engine would pull into the station, you say, the train's arrived. The train is here. But is that the case for the rest of the train cars? Well, no, it's not. But is there any capacity for those train cars not to reach the station? And everyone's thinking of sabotage and that. Just put that aside for the sake of the illustration. Let's just pretend it can't, there can be no sabotage or anything like that. So then the idea is, the engine has arrived and the cars must follow. Jesus is in heaven. He's there. The engine's at the station. He's arrived. And that means by necessity, by the nature of a train, so the rest of the train will be there as well. That's that sure pledge. He's there. We're joined to him. He's pulling us there. We're on our way. That's that future certainty. We are so connected to Christ that you can't be divorced anymore. You can't, you can't be segmented away. You're joined to him in faith. And that is that pledge of security. And so the resurrection includes this assurance that what has happened to Christ will happen to us. And it's important that we keep both sides of the resurrection in view here, the present reality and the future. We have to keep them both in their proper place. And where we would deviate from that, where we would fail to recognize their proper position, you, you fall into error. What are, what are some of these issues? 
If you only ever think about the resurrection in a, in a present sense, that, and, that, and what we mean there by the idea that you're already a new creature, if you only ever think about that, you will miss the idea of, of the sin that you still possess, that you must fight. You will also miss the idea that this world isn't all that it should be yet. 1 Corinthians 15, what we read, shows us this in the whole chapter. Paul's talking about the, the, the perishable bodies that we have now, putting on the imperishable. The idea that we're not all there yet. We're new creatures. We're spiritually made new. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, but we're not all there yet. And so we hate the sin that, we re, that remains, and we long for that future destination. Just keep chugging along with that illustration. We, we long to be at the train station. That's that desire. So we don't miss that. We understand that, that there's sin that we have to fight. And that's what Paul had said at the end here in verse 58. That, that you'd be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. What Paul's doing here is to show that our new condition, our new state in Christ, the, the surety of the resurrection should produce within us that hope. An, an immovableness, a steadfastness that abounds in the work of the Lord. And that helps come from that idea that we're not there yet. Those are the issues that can come from an over-realized, what we might call resurrection, an over-realized end times fulfillment, where we, where we miss, well, no, this world is not the new heavens and the new earth. We await it and we, we long for it. There's, though, additional dangers when you overpress the other side. We talked about them already. And that's when you only place the resurrection as a future event, you miss the identity that we have now as risen in Christ, as able to fight sin, to thwart guilt, to fight temptation, to know what we are now. So you'd miss that as well. So we have to keep both of these in their proper place, not overpressing the presentness of the resurrection, nor undervaluing the resurrection that has happened already for us in Christ. So why, in conclusion to all this, why does the resurrection matter? It matters because we share in the righteousness of Christ through it. it matters because it happened and it'll happen again. It matters because we now have access to the Father through Christ. It matters that we have a true a truth and a foundation to stand on as we battle guilt and temptation. It matters because we're equipped to fight. It matters because we have a sure pledge in heaven and a sure hope that we will be there with him as well. This is our mediator. The resurrection life is our life. We are raised with Christ. We are truly the people of the resurrection. That's what it means to be a Christian. Amen. Let's thank God for this great truth. Great God in heaven, we come to offer our praise and thanksgiving for this, your plan, your redemptive plan. This wasn't what just you landed upon. It wasn't random. This was always your intent to make us people of resurrection life, united to your Son. We thank you. And we pray that you would help us to see that we share in the righteousness of Christ already as a result of his resurrection. We pray that we would 
appropriately be able to see the truth that we are resurrected now in our spirits and souls in the sense that we have new life. The Holy Spirit has, has given us the birth from heaven. We're regenerated Christians. We belong to the new earth. Help us also to see that we are still sinful and we still fight sin and we long for that day when the resurrection reaches its final and full conclusion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.